0: all about Warren Buffett, and the key to successful investing may not be what you think it is. This is Industry Focus. Hi, Fools. Michael Douglas here, uh, financial analyst with Motley Fool, and I'm here with our senior banking specialist, John Maxfield from Portland.
1: John, how's it going? Great. It's great. It's good to be with you, Michael.
0: All right, fantastic. So we're, we're going to be talking about, uh, well, two articles that you've written recently. So I guess we'll just call ourselves the John Maxfield Show today, uh, which I'm okay with. Um, so, so let's let's start with sort of... Warren Buffett, right? Uh, you know, super investor. Everybody loves, uh, loves hearing what Buffett's got to say. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you've titled this article, you know, Warren Buffett does things that you shouldn't try at home. Encourage people to check it out on fool.com. It, it's an interesting article because it basically says, well, listen, a lot of people like to follow Buffett, but that's not always actually a great idea. Uh, walk us through your reasoning here, John.
1: So a lot of people look at Warren Buffett and they say, okay, this guy buys, great companies. He pays reasonable prices. And If you look at his portfolio, this has really been borne out over, over the years that this has turned um, remarkable, this, is, this resulted in remarkable investment returns. But here's the problem. If you look at any one individual investment, you can't just assume that he's buying, say, a great company or what he would say, a wonderful company at a reasonable price. And here's the reason. Buffett applies a number of different investment philosophies to his own approach to investing the, the additional cash proceeds at Berkshire Hathaway. And there are really three main influences on his thought process. There's Benjamin Graham, which is really his original mentor. And Benjamin Graham, he, he looked, he's the author of The Intelligent Investor. Um, he, I think he was mainly writing in the, the 30s. For, he, had, he had an investment fund uh, starting in the late 20s, I think, through the 30s and 40s and 50s. He was also a professor at Columbia Business School which is how Warren Buffett got to, got to know him. But he talked about, look, what you should do is you should buy relatively, that you should focus on cheap companies where there's a big difference between what you perceive to be the intrinsic value and what the market is valuing it at. But the problem with that is that most of those companies aren't actually really good companies that you can hold over a very long time. So that's one approach. This, the second approach that he uses is he adopted from Philip Fisher. And Philip Fisher was a growth stock guy. And basically he says, look, what you do is you just buy the most amazing companies that you can find, that you think have a lot of room to grow in the future, and you, you buy them really irrespective of price. So you have Graham on one side saying, look, you focus on price, you know, somewhat irrespective of quality. You have Fisher on the other side saying, "But quality, somewhat irrespective of price. And then you have Charlie Munger, who's the vice chairman of, of, of Berkshire Hathaway. He's kind of come in and said, look, and influenced Buffett and said, look, what you want is you want you know." Really good companies, but you pay a reasonable price for it, so it's kind of in the middle ground. Well, any individual investment that that Buffett goes into, and in, if you're going to follow into it, you need to know which of these philosophies he's following to know if that fits into your own portfolio. Yeah, no, that, that makes that makes
0: perfect sense. And uh, particularly, you know, when you're talking about value, I, I just couldn't think of that quote about cigar butt stocks, right? That might just have a couple puffs left in them. That maybe the market is left for dead. Um, of course, the problem with deep value like that is that unless you've really, really done your homework, you are going to get absolutely hammered on returns, right? And, and for me, like I remember, I uh, my very first stock was this Greek dry bulk shipper, um, and I thought, oh man, deep value, you know, it was a forward P/E of like six. Uh, of course, that was because they had serious cash flow problems. They've lost 85% of the value since then, and I just got creamed. Um, but it was a good lesson about you know, the fact that like, if you really think that you're going to find that inefficiency in the market, that the market's missing, chances are remarkably good you can't actually find that inefficiency easily yourself unless you've done a lot of homework.
1: I agree with that. And the other thing to keep in mind is that you know, when we're talking about individual investors, right, when we're out in the market buying and selling stocks, we have all these other competitors. So the question is, what is our competitive advantage yeah. as individual investors? And the answer to that is time. We do not have to report you know our earnings or our investment results on a quarterly or annual basis. So we can hold things for a long time. We don't have to trade in and out of stocks to make things look better. So but by holding things for a long time, debtors are one competitive advantage. And if you're going in and buying these discount, these, these cigar butt stocks, there's a potential that you're not going to be able to take advantage of your one competitive advantage, that is time, yeah. because these companies aren't going to live for that long, right? Yeah. Well, and and, and
0: when you're talking about competitive advantages, I mean, that's a big competitive advantage we have on mutual funds, right? Is that, you know, mutual funds, a bunch bunch of people decide to exit, fund has to sell uh, at, you know, sort of at whatever price, and that's a, that's a really painful thing for them, and that really does give people sort of opportunities to uh, pick stocks up for perhaps less than they really are worth. Uh, another point that you made in the article, and I, I thought this is a really important point for people to know about, is that you know when you're looking at big investors, folks like your Buffets, your Icons, your your Bill Ackmans, your George Soros's, um, that they don't have to they don't play exactly by the same rules we do right so they can kind of negotiate for things to be a little bit different so that just because somebody picks up a stock you know you really need to understand kind of the background of that deal and kind of what the what the what the fine print of that deal was and, and bank of america was one of your big examples of of a buffett uh, of buffett picking up a stock but maybe not for sort of reasons because he thinks it's a great company and also because he
1: kind of hedged his bets so let's talk about that a little bit well, to your point, when you look at Buffett's investment in Bank of America, so he has these, he has these warrants to buy 700 million shares at $7.14 a share, well, if you, if you convert that into actual common stock, it turns out that Bank of America is Warren Buffett's fifth largest holding at Berkshire Hathaway. So, you look at that and you think, wow, I mean, Warren Buffett must think that Bank of America is just this remarkable company, particularly when you look at the other banks that he owns. He owns Wells Fargo, U.S. Bancorp, and M&T Bank, and those are just uncategorically or just or not uncategorically, but rather categorically, the best banks in the country in terms of how they're run and the profitability and the return for for investors. Well, then when you dig into the details of that Bank of America deal for Buffett, I mean, it's, I mean you're talking about apples and oranges. This is just not a, an analogous thing. So, this was in 2011 when he made the investment. He went in, this was when Bank of America shares were trading like $6, $6.50, $7, in and around there. And he said, Look, Brian Moynihan, he called the CEO of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan, and said, Look, this is what we'll do. I'll invest $5 billion into preferred stock that yields 6% with Bank of America. This is $5 billion worth, right? So he gives him $5 billion and he gets $5 billion in preferred stock back. But on top of that, Buffett demanded that Bank of America give him warrants to purchase 700 million shares of Common Stock, Bank of America's Common Stock, at $7.14 a share. So that basically, he's already doubled his investment right there. Now, A typical investor just can't get a deal like that. So you can't look at Buffett's going into a Bank of America and saying like, oh, well, that means that I should follow him in into it because you're just not going to get that premium. And to a point that you made earlier before we were actually filming, Buffett took out all the risk of that deal for him By structuring in that way, you and I, or the other individual investors, simply can't do that when we just purchase common stock.
0: Yeah, well, and especially you know, once as as you noted before, we, before uh, I guess we just had this separate conversation that was really helpful. Then, Um, you know. Buffett basically sort of set up a heads I win, tails I win kind of thing with, you know, we knew the government wasn't going to let Bank of America die because, you know, this was in 2011 after uh, that conversation had already occurred. where The government was like, no, we're really going to step in. And so he had, you know, baked all of his downside out. And so it was just potential upside for him. Um, and, and actually this, this so, so blindly following Warren Buffett, you know, maybe or, or any, Super investor, if that matter, maybe not your best move, particularly if you're not reading the fine print, particularly if you don't understand um, what different philosophies are at play there. Um, this actually brings me, I think, very nicely to to the other article years we wanted to talk about, which was um, that kind of the, the key to great investing isn't always what you think it is. And you know, we always talk about that Warren Buffett quote, right? The twelve words: buy when others, uh, sorry, be greedy when others are fearful, and fearful when others are greedy. But not necessarily something that should be applied at all times.
1: That's true. I mean, now let's, let's be clear, right, Michael? If you want to succeed in the market, you've got to be a contrarian, which yes. means that you're going against the crowd in the investments that you make. However, and this is really kind of where the nuance comes into play, if you read you know, the great stock speculators, the great investors of the past, what, comes, what you come away with is not that these guys are focused on being contrarian because they're actually not. But being contrarian is rather kind of a natural byproduct of their just extreme intellectual independence. Warren Buffett doesn't live in Omaha, it's no coincidence that Warren Buffett lives in Omaha, Nebraska. And let me be clear. I grew up on, in Wyoming, about seven miles away from the Nebraska border, so I'm very fond of Nebraska. That's where <laughs> our family business was. But it is far from a financial hub in the global economy, okay? <laughs> very fair. But and and if you read back like all these other Jesse Livermores, famous stock speculator in the past, um, uh, Philip Fisher, which is one of Buffett's mentors, a, another famous um, uh, and successful investor, all of these guys say, uh, look, you've got to be independent in your thought process, and that independence sometimes will lead to a contrarian investment, um, but contrarianism. Is, is is not the end in and of itself. Independent intellectual independence is.
0: Yeah. No. And and again, you know, bringing up that sort of Greek dry bulk ship or my first investment, my first awful, awful individual investment in the stock market. You know, saw the price coming down. And I thought, you know, this is a contrarian buying opportunity. But what I hadn't done was the research uh, and the the being selectively contrarian is I think what I would call it. Sometimes when the market is, is you know, selling out of something, it's because it's an awful investment and it's, it's really so bad that you're not interested in that. But the fact of the matter is that there are times when the stock market is mispricing something. And if you have done the research and, and really have the intellectual independence and let's also go ahead and throw it out there, the uh, fortitude to kind of stand on your own, then there can be tremendous opportunities. Now, I, I think it's, 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 it's self-serving, right, for us to go into examples where this happened, because hindsight is twenty-twenty. Uh, but But the, the fact of the matter is that I think with strong research and sort of a, lot of a lot of work, we can identify some of these stocks that could be mispriced. I mean, that's something that we, we certainly try to do here at The Motley Fool all the time.
1: And, and our, you know, again, just to kind of pitch our own services, I mean, If you look at the results of our services and 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 run by very capable um, investment professionals, they have consistently beaten the market over the short and the long term. So that goes to show that you can beat the market um, by acting independently and coming up and you know doing your homework and doing all those things. But the question is, as as an individual investor, um, is it is, is that a feasible? Um, objective that you should be actually going after, or should you say use one of our? Of course, we think you should use one of our. You know, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> We're, We're a little bit. biased that way. maybe. <laughs> We're a little bit biased, but I mean, they have a they have a tried and true track record, right? Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the other alternative is you know you can go with with a mutual fund, um, or uh, which is and this is the third alternative is probably one of the most popular one, even with investment professionals. You can use a low cost exchange traded fund. Uh, that tracks a broad market index, say the S&P 500 or even like the, the, the World Index, um, and there are, there are a number of great ones, uh, particularly by Vanguard, which has probably some of the lowest expense ratios in, in the industry.
0: Yeah, well, certainly uh, Buffett's a big fan of the Vanguard funds. Um, I think that's a, a long and separate conversation we can we definitely can have and should have, by the way, because uh, I, I think it really gets to the the, the crucial issues of individual investing. Um, so let's 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 hold that conversation for another week. Uh, John, as always, a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, for the Motley Fool, I'm Michael Douglas. Uh, thanks for watching and listening. Uh, ch- uh, check into fool.com for all of your investing needs, and of course the the uh, uh, industry focus. Podcast. It is, after all, where the money is uh, and full on.